It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi, I'm Eric. And you're listening to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a bi-weekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. Today we have a very special episode because we'll be letting Eric go into a little more detail on pro wrestling in the U.S. And I'm going to get international by looking at some Lucha Libre. So, Eric, yeah, <laughs> you sent me some pictures of this wrestler, and uh, he was quite the looker. <laughs> that is Wild Bull Curry. And folks out there listening in Jackalope land, if you want to know who I'm talking about today, do yourself a favor and look up a man called Wild Bull Curry, C-U-R-R-Y. He was a professional wrestler between the 1930s and the 1960s. And he has, I think we can agree, the best set of eyebrows in all of professional sports. Oh, for sure. I mean, he would be the envy of all today because the thick eyebrows are in and he really had them. <laughs> and then some. Two episodes ago, we were talking about wrestling's sideshow origins in the carnival. And how it went from basically another rigged carnival game with people who had these amazing skills as athletes. And it morphed eventually into a rigged system known by the word kayfabe, which is sort of like you're in the know, right? It's the, it's the uh, wink, wink. You're wise to the system. It's fixed. And even though it's not fake because people really are throwing each other around, uh, the outcomes are predetermined. And the performers are trying to not completely kill each other, but make it look like they're trying to kill each other. And they do, in fact, get hurt. Yeah, we, we actually one of our listeners uh, mentioned on our Instagram at Jackalope Carnival, y'all, uh, that she thought that Kayfabe would be a great name for her firstborn. <laughs> so um, I'm going to not disagree with that. That was a great name. That's awesome. <laughs> so I want to talk about Wild Bull Curry first. This fellow we were talking about with the amazing eyebrows. Uh, go ahead again. Look him up if, you, if you've never seen the man before because he's pivotal. He was there when wrestling left the sideshow. And went into what we call the territory system. That is, there were these regional wrestling federations. Um, Florida had its own federation. The Mid-South had their own. Uh, New York area had their own. Even There were even Canadian provinces that had their own professional wrestling area. They were known as the territories. And each territory had its own champion. That's when we really start getting into it stops being a competitive sport and it starts becoming more of sports entertainment, I suppose. It's still a sport. It's still an athletic uh, show. People are still getting hurt and putting their bodies on the line. But it's rare that there are un unknown winners. Now, occasionally you would have people who would shoot on a champion, meaning that they would turn the, the fight that was supposed to be predetermined into an actual wrestling match. And because of that, these champs did have to know how to wrestle back then. Wild Bull Curry is a person 
who lived during that era when it went from- You paused. And I was thinking, well, you, those eyebrows, maybe not. Like he's hanging out with Bigfoot. <laughs> he would have uh, he would have totally loved that actually at the time um, because he, he cultivated this, this character. And again, we're going from carnival people to, you know, modern pro wrestling with characters. And he's one of the first that I'm aware of. And if, if someone knows better, please correct me. But he's one of the first pro wrestlers in history to start developing almost a larger than life character. You know, that that kind of thing is sort of typified by Gorgeous George, of course, who has a completely different character. But Wild Bull Curry's character was one of like the literal wild man, like Bigfoot, you know, an out of control, crazy person who, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if he lived in the woods next to Bigfoot. And that was kind of the persona that he to put forward in his wrestling character and he would scare people people would cry like you know kids would sometimes cry and run away when he came out and he was known to be able to silence an audience just by giving them one of his mean looks uh so he was he's quite a fella you know eric it's we've been a little bit remiss in band names but i think bigfoot wrestling league would be a really good band name <laughs> true <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so getting back to Wild Bull name, Curry. Yeah. Um, right. So not only did he start creating this idea of a character and a larger-than-life character to help promote himself as a wrestler, but he did something else. He kind of harkened back to – do you remember gouging from two weeks ago? Yes, I do. <laughs> no holds barred wrestling. Well, wrestling – I guess you can roughly call it that part of it was wrestling. Some of it was scratching. Some of it was biting. And so this gouging style that was in the South in the 17 and 1800s, we assume it died out, but wild bull Curry was a revivalist of sorts, a historian, if you will, in that he brought a version of this rough and tumble back. Uh, whereas most of the wrestlers, the good guys or the faces as they were called, kept within the rules and the bad guys known as the heels would of course sometimes break the rules. And by breaking the rules, what we mean is they would do things like get out of the ring, pull tights, pull hair, you know, I mean stuff that's, that's fairly tame. Uh, Wild Bull Curry was known to bring brass knuckles and keep them in his trunks. And his gimmick was when the referee would, you know, couldn't see, he would pull the brass knuckles out and wrap the guy across the face and, you know, he would fall down and, and he would win. And he also was one of the first wrestlers to popularize blood because it was found out that people, when they knew Bill, uh, Wild Bull Curry was coming, they knew that there was a chance of some serious violence happening and that would help him sell tickets. His shtick with his brass knuckles became so well known that the NWA in the Texas Territory, that is the National Wrestling Alliance, in the Texas Territory created the Texas Brass Knuckles Championship belt for him. And he defended that belt. He was the Texas Brass Knuckles champion. He also was not just using brass knuckles. Uh, he would use chairs. <laughs> he would use... Um, wax knuckles. <laughs> Wax knuckles, tooth knuckles, <laughs> maybe gold knuckles. Those are yeah, al aluminum. Or if you got the British made, they were um, aluminium knuckles. Aluminium knuckles. Uh, yeah. Those are the ones that I would want used on me personally. But soap knuckles, maybe wax knuckles. Anyhow, there you go. Um, it, yeah, it, just cut all that out, Eric. Just cut <laughs> all that out. <laughs> nope, stay in. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Feather Knuckles. That's very, that'd be great. That'd be Boy George. Uh, Boy George's. Boy George. I was thinking uh, Gorgeous George. Boy. Gorgeous Boy George, George were a wrestler. He probably would have been into like the Feather Knuckles. If Boy George was into wrestling, he totally would have accompanied Gorgeous George to the ring. There's just no doubt about it. That would have absolutely worked, actually. But anyhow, getting back to Wild Bull Curry, uh, there's a couple of good stories from him from his wrestling days. Two of my favorite are he kept a hold of all the money that he made. And he actually had a family. He actually had kids and a wife. That was not part of his image. But he was saving up his money so that he could support his family. But because of his persona, because of his character, and because of his reputation, he found that he was able to get a hotel in the seediest, sketchiest part of town because everyone was afraid of him. Mm-hmm. So he, it saves you money. Bad it, rep saves you money. That's exactly right. So he'd go to like the worst hotel in town that would charge the least amount of money and he didn't care. And and he found out that like he would he would make the normal muggers cross the street, you know. Because they were trying to get away from Wild Bull Curry. But the really good, I don't know if this is kayfabe or I don't know if this actually happened. And I remember when I was telling you about this, you were like, I hope this is true. And I do too. But he, in his one of his matches, he decided to use a cinder block on an opponent. And his opponent, who was a face, a popular wrestler, bled. And it was a very violent match. And someone called the police. And again, I don't know if that was part of the storyline. Keep in mind, this is the 1960s. So kayfabe was rock solid back then. Uh, It wasn't like in the 1990s when wrestling promotions started kind of acknowledging that matches were predetermined and that some of the violence, you know, that you were seeing um, might not be as life threatening or that sort of thing. Uh, In the 60s, Unless you were in the biz, unless you were a wrestler or a promoter or a manager, right, they didn't talk about the fact that everything was predetermined. And so everybody from security guards to the crowd to local sportscasters were not let in on the idea that this was that the outcome was predetermined. So someone may very well have just called the cops on Wild Bull Curry for using a cinder block on an opponent. And he was arrested. And so the storyline goes, he was taken to jail and he was let out on work release on a weekly basis to go wrestle. The police would take him to the arena, you know, in handcuffs and unlock him and let him go wrestle and then rearrest him and take him back to jail to finish out his sentence. And again, I mean, if it's not if it's not true, it's a great shtick. Like, that is great. Exactly. That's a good shtick to have. Yeah, and it's it could be kayfabe, and if it is, like you said, that doesn't that really doesn't take away from it because that's just sort of like good good artwork there, you know. Uh, but if it's not, that's even better, I guess. Wild Bull Curry is a pivotal figure not just because he saw wrestling move from the carnivals to the territories, but he was also a pioneer of what would be known as hardcore wrestling. If you're a fan of professional wrestling or even just obliquely aware of it, you might remember in the 1980s. The WWF product, the Hulk Hogan era there, was a bit cartoonish. Uh, the good guys were really good. The bad guys were really bad. It was rare if you were watching a WWF show on TV that you would ever see anything like blood. Then came in the 1990s something called hardcore wrestling. And it kind of began in a couple of different places. Japan was known for doing some pretty extreme things like replacing the ropes in the wrestling ring with barbed wire or setting things literally on fire during the match. 
back in the United States, the ECW or Extreme Championship Wrestling out of Philadelphia, that promotion in the early 90s started doing something similar to what was going on in Japan, where they would have matches with barbed wire, thumbtacks, baseball bats, tables, and trash cans. And people would bring things to the ring and they would use these props to beat on each other. And again, even though they're not trying to cause permanent injury in most cases, there's really not a way you can softly hit someone with a metal garbage can and have it dent. So these were folks, this this extreme version of the wrestling uh, took its toll on people. Wild Bull Curry, I think, is a less acknowledged godfather of that style of wrestling. Often Terry Funk is cited as the wrestler who was who made it famous early, but Walt Bull Curry, I would argue, did it a little bit earlier. This type of wrestling can still be found occasionally alongside standard pro wrestling uh, that you might see in some of the promotions like Ring of Honor or WWE or other promotions internationally. Again, there are hardcore matches, matches still going on in, uh, in Japan as well. But there are other styles of wrestling, professional wrestling, that are happening in other parts of the world, too. And I think that's what you want to talk about today, isn't it? Well, it is, actually. Um, And strangely enough, one of the people I'm talking about, she actually ended up working in Japan for a little bit. Eric has been talking about the 1930s. And September 21st, 1933, so this month, the anniversary of the birth of Lucha Libre, also known as Mexican wrestling. And Mexican wrestling, if you're unaware of it, is a type of pro wrestling, and it's characterized by its dynamic acrobatic moves, dramatic, talking high drama matches, and of course, masks. And since 1933, it has become so ingrained in Mexican culture that in 2018, Mexico City declared Lucha Libre part of the city's intangible cultural heritage so so (laughs) it is right so for those of you who have not heard this term before intangible cultural heritage practices are traditions that are passed down from generation to generation as key parts of a culture so this is usually reserved for folk dances craft practices you know songs festivals however it seems like because i check the dates on when these kind of came in, that in the 21st century, UNESCO started to open these up as world traditions. So to be fair, Lucha Libre just in Mexico City, but UNESCO started opening this category up more to include types of wrestling by adding the Kirpinar Oil Wrestling Festival of Turkey in 2010. When I first heard about that style of wrestling, I was in undergrad and I was trying to explain to the people at the dining hall, what I had learned, and they thought I was pulling their leg. Did you look up what that wrestling is? Oh, I, I spent much of my time researching <laughs> these wrestling styles, to be fair. Um, but the oil wrestling, yeah, they literally are pouring oil, um, as it was explained in one of the videos I watched, to make it last longer. And so they are covered in oil, and they are doing this wrestling festival in Turkey, um, which has a long history in the culture. So I thought that that was pretty cool that this oil wrestling festival, yeah. It's perfectly legal to also go ahead and grab people in the pants. And, you know, and that's not uncommon in some of the traditions because this is, um, this is not the only one. (laughs) So (laughs) 
I just I, the, 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 like when I was telling people I found this, and they were like, "You're making this and, up." To... And back then, it was not a UNESCO cultural inherent cultural tradition, but now it is. And so, um, so that was 2010. Mexico City, like I said, acknowledging Lucha Libre in 2018, UNESCO honors Georgia's traditional form of wrestling, Chidoba. Have you heard of that one? And I assume you're talking about the... the yeah, Georgia, the country, Georgia not the, Georgia down south. I'm pretty sure that's oil wrestling in the with a hog. And I can say <laughs> right. that. You can't... It, you're punching down to make fun of the south, but I actually was born and live in the south, so I feel like I can throw one out there. All right, fair enough. Anyhow. And so we're talking about the... Ca- right, the, the in the Caucasus Mountains. The, the country, country of Georgia. Georgia. Right. And their wrestling, it's pretty badass. Um, they have... It mainly looks like you have to get your opponent... You're standing and you're trying to get your opponent's shoulders down, but they play drums and pipes, so it kind of gives it this more... I don't know... You, you sound like you're in the Middle Ages and you're doing this wrestling. And sometimes they'll do a folk dance afterwards. So it was pretty cool. Is it like the and river then, dance of wrestling? No. The the folk dance afterward wasn't. More like a touchdown dance. But it was a, a, a prescribed folk dance. And I thought that was really neat. All right, and enough. and Kirk Pinar also, they have music and drumming that they play during that festival. So both of these, I think, maybe should be more incorporated into folk music in pro wrestling. I'm for it. Um, and these are these are traditional martial arts. I now understand why Georgia in the last Olympics won, <laughs> won because wrestling they won a wrestling and judo, and also weightlifting because this is so part of their culture to do this. Then there's Korea's form of wrestling, which is Sirium, I believe it's S S I R E U M. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so they also had in 2018, their traditional martial art of wrestling was, so will we see Lucha Libre internationally honored by UNESCO <laughs> one day? I think we might. I, I think not? it's a possibility. Yeah. Just like in the U.S., wrestling doesn't suddenly begin in Mexico in the 20th century. Mexico's introduced to Greco-Roman wrestling in the 1800s. And I um, also want to just add that while the only documented indigenous style of wrestling I could find in any of the Americas was called Hookah Hookah in the Amazon, I'm just going to make a statement that I thoroughly believe that Mexico had some type of indigenous wrestling before they encountered Europe. Sure. Why not? Um, absolutely. Not why not? Like they, they had it. Right. Um, uh, human beings have been <laughs> wrestling since before writing. So... Yeah, so I'm going to say that we, you know, that I couldn't find the documentation. I only spent about 15 minutes looking for it. But none of these had the style, the glamour, and the drama that we start to get in 1933 with the advent of Lucha Libre. It all starts in the 1920s. A man named Salvador Gonzalez was working for the Mexican tax authority. A tax man starts Lucha Libre? What? And he's a property inspector. And his job moves his family to Ciudad Juarez, which is a city on the Mexico-U.S. border. It's, so he crosses the border to hang out one night, and he sees in El Paso, Texas, American pro wrestling. And what, what year is this again? 19, I believe it's 1929 when he first sees this. So it could, it could literally be Wild Bull Curry that he's seeing. I, believe it was a man named Gus Pappas, who is uh, um, a Greek wrestler that he finds. Okay. But he could have seen one of Wild Bull Curry's matches, no problem. Yeah. 
And the, the this was mentioned as the first one. And so, yeah, he was going to these. He could have seen it. He starts bringing his kids. <laughs> he's bringing his family. And he falls in love. And he says, you know what? Mexico needs this. <laughs> like, man, we need this stuff. So he gets an investor. And he starts Empresa Mexicana de Lucha Libre, or the Mexican Wrestling Enterprise, the first Mexican-owned wrestling promotion in the country. And, you know, at first, the wrestlers are mostly from the States. But it's not long before Mexico begins training its own wrestlers, and they begin adding their own flair and creating their own superstars. It's kind of the magic happens. And... Something about Mexican wrestling is, like I said, masks. So from its beginning in the 30s, masks have been a crucial part of wrestling in Mexico. Being unmasked can have a really negative impact on your career. So if someone had shown photos of the wrestler unmasked, on occasion, a challenge will be issued in high drama style. And someone will say, if you lose this, you must throw your mask off and burn it. And mask the mask versus is, mask. You're, yeah, you're unmasked. And then the loser would have to quit wrestling. I'm putting quit in quotations because generally they would just change identities. So Mexican wrestlers with wearing masks, um, especially in the early days, would sometimes change characters. Um, and we'll see this, especially with one of our women wrestlers. All right. So in the 1940s, Mexico starts witnessing the rise of a legend and a few legends. But this one in particular, El Santo, is one of the most famous wrestlers of all time. Have you watched any of the movies? Of, of his movies? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they are kitsch-tastic. I one of, love them. I, that does not surprise me. So the man behind El Santo, um, Rodolfo Guzman Huerta, was said to have been so serious about being a mascarado, so just being a masked wrestler, that he did not reveal his face in public until just before his death. So he would fly on airplanes in his mask. Um, like he took this very seriously. You wouldn't see him without his mask after he dies his son becomes el hijo del santo so the son of <laughs> the saint um so his son takes the the mantle and um in the middle of a divorce with his ex-wife el hijo de santo she releases pictures of his real face oh. and right away the wrestler and his lawyer say nope that's not him it's another guy <laughs> oh that's a low blow that's not him. You know, oh, no, no, no. That's some other guy. So this is how serious that masks can be for luchadors. So And I El love it. Can hmm? we talk about the movies for a second? Because we're, that's just where I'm getting, Eric. All right. El Santo <laughs> is, along with other famous wrestlers. Oh, hold your horses. All right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm so excited. Blue, Blue Demon and even some luchadoras. They become more than just luchadors. They feature in comics in films and kind of take over pop cultural in general. They really do become superheroes and have a huge influence on the culture as Eric is really excited to tell you about right now. <laughs> well, I just, I love that they have this, this movie where he's a, like a police detective and he's coming to work and he's wearing his luchador mask and everyone in the movie is just like, oh, that's just the police officer who wears a luchador mask. Like, they don't even mention it. It's like, no big deal. Oh, okay, cool. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that for many years, that was absolutely like part of the genre. Have you seen the Batwoman? No, I haven't seen that one. So the Batwoman is from the 60s, which is interesting because we're going to talk about the there was a ban on women wrestlers but um the la mujer murcielago um this was where she's wearing her mask and she's a wrestler and uh she's but she's also batwoman but she's also saving men wrestlers from scientists who are trying to take their souls or something it was very (laughs) you're just like this is uh (laughs) so that's on youtube in full so just in case anyone wants to watch it but yeah these are You can see why Mexico City would say this is an inherent part of their cultural heritage because this was Superman, right? These were the superheroes. And so perhaps that's one of the reasons why El Santo felt really like he couldn't unmask in public because he felt like he didn't want to, you know, ruin anyone's image of him. Who knows? So for many years in Mexico, now I'm going to do, now we're doing a social commentary. For many years in Mexico, luchadors began to be seen as the embodiment of Mexicanidad. Mexicanidad, Mexicanness, Mexican identity. And like a lot of countries in the mid-century, 1950s, 60s, that identity was pretty gendered. Now, there have been a lot of representations of womanhood in Mexico from you know, fierce pre-contact Aztec goddesses, this controversial figure of La Malinche, Soldaderas or Aralitas, and these are my favorites. They're the warrior women um, of the Mexican Revolution. They would literally ride horses, shoot people, command armies, and, you know, the fierce art of Frida Kahlo. But um, I was reading a book by this woman named Marjolene Von Bevel, and she writes a book called Morbo Lucha Libre in Television, the Ban of Women Wrestlers from Mexico City in the 1950s. And she says that post-Mexican Revolution, so post-1910, that the government was trying to reshape national identity. And I think a larger part of Western culture, that this idea of violence and strength and decisiveness and courage that was so inherent in how people saw luchadors seemed to be to them at the time, in contrast with what Mexican womanhood, what they were trying to frame that to be. So they were saying, you know, motherhood and, you know, self-sacrifice. And as a result, women were supposed to be passive and nurturing and docile and fragile, which was the opposite of luchadoras. So they were still there, even though the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there were luchadoras, and they trained right alongside the men wrestlers. In 1950, in the late 50s, Mexico City bans women wrestlers Hmm. until the 80s. Oh, wow. Now you're saying, okay, well, great. You know, Mexico City banned them. I was, you can can you go to go Juarez other places? And, and see it? Yeah, you can. It's like saying, yeah, you know, you can't work in Hollywood. How about Duluth? Not to, I'm sure Duluth has a thriving <laughs> arts community and film, but basically, this is where the money was. You know, yeah, they could go somewhere like Ciudad Juarez, but they weren't going to make the money. They gotcha. weren't going to have the fame. They weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do, but some did. And so one of those women that did, this didn't stop her. Her name is Irma Gonzalez, and she's still alive today. She was one of the wrestlers in the 1940s is when she started. She's 85 years old today. 
Her last confirmed match was in 1996. That's awesome. And yeah. And, you know, it wasn't easy for women to start in wrestling at that point. While she certainly did, she had grown up in a circus. And so she had done acrobatics. So she had strength already. So it was really natural for her to go into wrestling. She trained like I said, the women and men trained alongside uh, her friend happened to be El Santo, which is one of the reasons why I brought him up. The legend has it that she got engaged to someone. And when she got married, he said she'd have to give up wrestling. And before this time, you know, she had different identities, the black flower, um, the white rose, but she decided that, well, heck, if I'm going to continue wrestling against my husband's desires, I could probably do it if I wore a mask. And so she cooks up this gimmick with her friend, El Santo, that she's going to wear a mask and she's going to be La Novia del Santo or the bride of El Santo. <laughs> He's got a whole wrestling family, his son, his bride. And so uh, she still wrestles, even though she, Surprise, surprise, that marriage didn't work out. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she does continue to wrestle even after the ban. And she does not let that stop her. She travels all around Mexico. She travels to Japan for a time. So some of the things that you were talking about, I was reading about, it was apparently when she was doing it, it was a little different then. Well, the, the hardcore wrestling isn't the only kind of style they have in, in uh, Japan. They also I believe have the women was called Joshi Pro Risu. I can't pronounce it. Pro Risu. It is, is one of yeah, the styles. And also they, they call it King's Road. Uh, there's different styles of wrestling in Japan. Uh, it's not all hardcore. Well, the Joshi was what she did. Yeah, I'm really glad my Spanish pronunciation is better than my Japanese. <laughs> and German. <laughs> so... Eventually, though, she makes her way back to Mexico City and, um, you know, she's older. <laughs> she <laughs> continues wrestling well into her 50s. So not only is she a pioneer, um, not only is she like has this indomitable spirit. Well, like this is what I'm going to do. She's won many different belts. She's still alive. She passes on this this love of wrestling to her daughter, Irma Aguilar, and they wrestle together as a tag team for a time. And she breaks into wrestling at this hard time, sticks with it, and doesn't care what society's telling her. And I think that she is actually really the embodiment of this idea of Mexicanidad and, and warrior women. So I'm pretty impressed with her. That's pretty awesome. I think that when I wanted to talk about pro wrestling, the reason being is because, you know, I know we say this almost every episode now this season, but this really is an interesting way to talk about belief and suspension of belief and stretching suspension of belief and playing with belief. These characters, these larger than life superhero characters are acting out their struggles and battles in the ring in front of people. And, you know, on one hand, I think people are probably knowing that this isn't 100% real. True, thing. perhaps. Yeah, yeah and, you know, but the, the then, and, and that's funny that you should mention belief because, you know, Irma certainly had to have this belief in herself. And the next person I'm going to talk about briefly 
Belief definitely comes in. Belief in self, belief in higher power, and belief in a dream. Um, While there's always been an exchange between American and Mexican wrestlers, the style and moves of Lucha Libre took a while to catch on in the U.S., With wrestlers like Rey Mysterio helping to popularize Lucha Libre outside of a Mexican-American communities. But today in the U.S., even in my home state here of North Carolina, it's really common to see luchador masks used as symbols of Mexican culture, decorations in restaurants, etc. One of the reasons for this is not due to wrestling itself, but a certain film that embedded Lucha Libre in everyday American pop culture. I think you know where I'm going with this, Eric. Is Jack Black involved? It's a little Jack Black film called Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre, believe it or not, is actually based on a real-life person who wrestles under the name of Fra Tormenta, Father Storm. And he's actually a priest. Um, Fra Tormenta, or Sergio Benitez, is a Catholic priest who runs a home for orphans. For reals. For realsies. And when he was 22 years old, he was said to have been an alcoholic and a drug addict who had, um, well, a come-to-Jesus moment. And he decided to become a priest. He became ordained, and he taught in Spain and Italy. But eventually he returns to Mexico, and he's assigned a small parish And that parish, he founds an orphanage. But it turns out orphans are pretty expensive, especially the 270 he had. And this is in the 1970s. He's not a rich man, but he gets the idea that he's going to become a luchador. And I like to think that Jesus told him to, because I really don't understand how it'd be like, hey, I need money. I'm going to start wrestling. (laughs) The most lucrative of ideas it's more interesting than like a bake sale i'll tell you that yeah that this is true so again at first he really didn't make big money he woke up at like 4 30 a.m for a year and he goes to a gym in mexico city where he learns how to become a wrestler so he doesn't even know how to wrestle (laughs) He's just a priest with a dream. (laughs) That's why I have to wonder if this wasn't some sort of religious vision. And he has to come back to church at 8 a.m. to give mass. And his first match, he doesn't even win very much money. It's about $10. That's all. Hmm. But he keeps going. He believes in himself. He has a dream that he's going to wrestle for the orphans. (laughs) And he does. He starts to gradually build up a following, and pretty soon he is admitted into um, one of the leagues, one of the promotions, and he start, things start to get better. He says that no one knew he was a priest at that point, and they probably would not have been delighted. And speaking of not delighted, his bishop finds out, and his bishop is not real happy. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. And he tells... Yeah, he's not happy about this. And he demands that Fra Tormento gives up the sport. He has to stop, but he doesn't. (laughs) So apparently when you get bit by the wrestling bug, like nothing's going to stop you. You're just going to do it. Did he at least change his, uh, did he change his gimmick to, to hide from his bishop or did he just keep going? 
No, not at all. And his mask is yellow because that's the color of energy that he needs and red for the blood that Christ spilled and that he must spill for the orphans. That's pretty dramatic. It's pretty dramatic. <laughs> You're like, I don't need it. So, you know, this isn't... Nacho Libre wasn't the first the movie that was made about him. He makes one in 1999. There's a French film made loosely based on him. And then again, Nacho Libre in what, 2005, uh, six, seven, sometime around then. And so when he gets the money from those, from the rights, he builds, puts it toward orphanage. He builds a brick and mortar. And so officially he's been retired since around 2011, but he still sometimes, and I've seen pictures, they say he's quite the showman. He still wears his luchador mask while he's performing his duties <laughs> as a priest for his congregation. Good for him. So he, he wears his robes and his luchador mask. And, um, and I wonder his what his bishop is saying these days. I mean, maybe his bishop has a mask now, too. Like, maybe they're all doing it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> He's integrated uh, into his clericals. Really... He's wearing different colored masks depending on the liturgical season. <laughs> I mean, it would be a really good way to, like, avoid people. Like, just put on a different mask. Oh, right. he's not here right now. Uh... He has, like, a sackcloth mask for Lent. He has, like, a blue mask for <laughs> for Advent. Eric's getting ideas. So, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of bishops that would not be thrilled about an idea. Yeah. So everyone, um, you know, Eric still hasn't donned his wrestling persona and um, just, I, I, but he's thinking of it. So just keep clapping. That's all I want to say. <laughs> if you've listened to the last one, keep clapping. So this is all that we have for this week, but I just, I wanted to take a look at all of these stories and just look at the belief in self and the belief in something a little outside of themselves that everyone in everyone in these stories had to have. And hopefully um, we can let you be inspired to maybe have a little more belief in things this week. As we no. had, as we head closer into October, two things are going to happen. Number one, of course, October is going to see us returning back to more of paranormal stories. We kind of go all over the place as we like, but that will oh, also yeah. be Becca. That will be our one year anniversary. That's very exciting. And because our one year anniversary is coming up, you will be hearing more cryptids. Indeed. So that's all that's I got. a promise. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And yeah, we look forward to going back to our spooky roots. All right, Wado. Take care, folks. Jackalope Carnival.